If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of James towards the back of your Bibles. James chapter 1, we are continuing from where we picked up last week. We made it through four verses. My hope is to be able to make it through a few more today. And in James chapter 1, as James is writing this very practical letter uh, to the Christians who were living in the first century, to those who had been dispersed all throughout the regions, and calling upon them to continue to battle and to persevere in the midst of trials, we're going to look at it again today and focus on the joy of testing. So James chapter 1, we're going to skip ahead just a few verses to verse 9. I'll fill in the gap between now and then, but we're going to pick up in verse 9. If you are physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me one last time to honor the reading of God's Word, and then I'll let you sit down. James chapter 1, verse 9, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. James writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you, and I thank you this morning that we're able to take your word and open it. And Lord, I pray that as we do so, you would teach us by your spirit's power. And Lord, I ask you this morning to point us to the beauty of Jesus, because he is the only one who brings hope and joy in the midst of the struggles that we face. And so I pray that he is glorified and lifted high. And Father, I do pray that what we'll find here this morning is a picture of your grace towards us, that even though we had rebelled against you, you poured out your grace in rescuing us. And God, in your rescue, you bring all things together for our good and use it all so that we might be more like Christ. So Father, as we study today, help us to see the good news that is found here and help us to give you glory and honor. Teach us by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You can be seated for a minute. Joy in testing. These are not things that we expect to find together in the same sentence. Testing very much brings with it negative connotations, that nothing good can come out of it, that we live in a culture that, that believes that, for the most part, there is no purpose in the sufferings you face or in the trials you endure. But according to God's word, there is very much a purpose for why you walk through what you do. And the purpose for why you go through times of testing is ultimately that you might have joy as God produces steadfastness in you that ultimately results in you being presented perfect before the Father. And so this morning, as we focus in on these verses, I want to point us to a few important truths that I believe help us to see joy in the midst of the testing that we find. Because everyone in the room is going to go through different types of testing, but there is the same goal or outcome for all. Now, in between the verses we looked at last week where we saw that, that James commanded Christians to count it all joy whenever they met trials of various kinds. He told them the purpose for why they met trials. He said that trials were producing steadfastness. They were testing our faith in God and that steadfastness would eventually reach its ultimate conclusion of being presented perfect before the Father. After that, in verse 5, James goes on to say that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Right, that, that part of joy in testing is going to be our dependence on God, our trust in Him. And that trust is displayed many times through our prayers to Him. That as we go through trials and tribulations, we cling to God in prayer. We go to Him and we beg Him for wisdom to see how He sees. That we might view our trials rightly. And that's going to require us to pray. You're going to go through things that on the surface you can't see how there could be any redeemable good coming out of it. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He says pray. Pray for wisdom. And God is glad to give wisdom in the midst of our trials. Now in verse 9... He's going to point out to us that trials and their results and what they're producing are, the, are for the same purpose regardless of what circumstances you find yourself right now in this world. In verse 9, he presents to us the lowly brother and the rich. And in this, I believe what we see is the first truth I want to point you to. That's not it. That is. Number one, material possessions and social status do not bring ultimate joy. That these things cannot produce for you what God alone can. And in the midst of trials, these things cannot rescue you and cannot provide ultimate meaning to you. Notice he says in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So I think the most important thing for us to say this morning is, what does he mean by lowly and rich? What's he referring to? Is he talking spiritually? Is he talking physically? What is he getting at in this comparison? Well, I believe from the verses that follow, 
What James is telling us is a story about a man who materially had very little, who was lowly, and a man who had much, who was rich materially. That both of them find themselves under different circumstances, and the lowly brother might find himself in despair. Why? Why might the lowly brother need to boast in his exaltation? Well, in society, do we look with favor upon the lowly? No, usually we look with favor towards the rich. Those who appear to have it all, those who appear to have their life in order. Remember, in Jewish life, to be poor was to have the picture of God not being pleased with you. If God blesses those who are faithful, then guess what? If you ain't got nothing, what do people think of you? Well, you ain't blessed of God. You must have done something against him, right? We don't naturally lift up lowly people who are poor, who don't have much. They are many times in society looked down upon. Oh, and by the way, in Roman culture, you better believe that's how it looked. If you didn't have much, you weren't much. You weren't valuable in the eyes of culture or in society. You were looked down upon. So here, James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Okay? So if the lowly brother is supposed to boast uh, in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, is exaltation talking physically, spiritually? What kind of exaltation? I believe he's talking from the context of these verses that the one who has nothing materially, the one who is looked down upon in society as being worthless, is to boast in his exaltation. And I don't believe that exaltation is talking about some social status he's going to get that's finally going to make him feel like he's worth something. But rather, his exaltation is going to be found in his connection to God. That even though he has nothing, and even though the world would look at him and say that he is nothing of value... James says, let the lowly man boast in his exaltation. That his eyes cannot be set on what he's looking at right now, but must be turned back to God to see that in union with God, there is exaltation. And then he goes on to say that the rich man who has much materially according to this world, who has every advantage, the one who looks like he has everything put together, he says he is to... As the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation. That humbling. Well, what could humble a rich man? What could humble somebody who has everything you could ever want? Well, losing everything and ultimately not having Jesus. You know, the Bible is kind of scandalous in the fact that there are parables told of rich people not being with God and poor people being with God. Why? Because it was contrary to what they believed about how one was with God and what material possessions and social status meant. Because for them, being with God and being materially wealthy or having social status went together. And what Jesus taught and what his disciples teach is that what you have materially and the social status you hold in this life does not make you right with God and it does not equal you being in heaven. Amen. 
Why? Because material possessions and social status, according to the Bible, do not bring ultimate joy. Notice I said ultimate. You can have joy, right? Something, you know, you get a nice gift, it brings joy, but it's not supposed to be your primary joy. And the problem is the Bible teaches us that many times material possessions and social status are what we put our trust in. Now, when you're going through trials and tribulations, what can that mean? What happens if they start being ripped from you? What happens if they're taken? What if they're not there anymore? If your joy is dependent on your situation and your status and your possessions, then what happens when they're gone? What happens when the testing comes? All of a sudden, there is no joy. There is no hope. But remember that the lowly man, the lowly brother, can boast and should boast in his exaltation before God. That he can actually, whether he has little or much, he can actually find joy and exaltation in the sight of God. In other words, joy isn't dependent on our situation but on our Savior. Joy isn't dependent on our situation, but on our Savior. That's the difference between exaltation and humiliation. Now notice he says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Not, did you notice that? Not his stuff will pass away, although that's true. But here James says that the rich man in his humiliation needs to understand that like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Life is finite, whether you are rich or poor. You find yourself before God in the same position, needing him. And so here we find that the sun rises, verse 11, with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fa flower falls and its beauty perishes, do I need to convince y'all that that's true? That your flower has wilted a little bit in the last 20 years? Uh, right? Now remember the culture they're in. They're in like a, a desert area where if it rains, you can see grass start to sprout up. But then when the sun comes out, gone. And James says, for the rich man and for the poor man, it's true. We are all deteriorating. Our flower is falling. Our grass is withering. And one day it will perish. Whether you have a lot of money and a lot of power and social prestige or whether you're the lowly bum on the side of the street, we find ourselves in the same spot. He says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Not his stuff fade away, the rich man himself will fade away. While clinging to his possessions, and he will find himself empty before God. Why? Because material possessions and social status do not bring ultimate joy. And when we try to pursue them as our ultimate joy, we are left wanting. They cannot fulfill. Verse 12 not only can they not be our ultimate joy, but we actually know where joy is found. We're told that joy is found in God alone who is faithful to his promises. Verse 12. Blessed is the man. 
The word blessed means joyful, right? Remember at the beginning of the letter, James says, count it all joy whenever you go through various trials because they're producing steadfastness and steadfastness will ultimately result in you being perfect before God when Jesus comes back. Now he says, blessed or joyful is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So what is the basis of joy? What is the basis of blessing in this verse? Remaining steadfast under trial. It doesn't depend on whether you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money. It's not about social prestige or material possessions. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. If there is a reward that is found in perseverance, our joy is found in God because he is faithful to his promises. God says he will give his people this. God says he will reward those who are diligent in the midst of persecution, in the midst of temptation and trials. God will be the one who brings joy because he is faithful to his promises. What does God promise to give? He promises to give endurance. He promises to produce steadfastness. And ultimately, he promises to give the crown of life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Joy is found in our faithfulness and trust in God no matter what circumstances come no matter the trial, and some of those trials are going to be significant. But joy is found in clinging to God, knowing that he rewards those who cling to him. And that reward is no slight thing. It is no small reward to have the crown of life, to have eternal life. See, I love the fact that it's described as the crown. Because it's that picture to me of winning the race. You've run and no matter what obstacles have been in front, you have endured and you have been steadfast and at the end, you find the victorious crown. Because you've endured, you are now the recipient of the greatest joy you could ever have, which is God himself eternally. Amen. To dwell with him and to be with him, that's where joy is found. Not in my possessions, not in my social status, not if I can get other people to think much of me. My joy in the midst of trials is the fact that I'm God's, and when I'm done, he's going to reward me with himself forever. And that crown of life is promised to every Christian who loves Jesus. So joy is found in God alone who is faithful to his promises. But James wants us to understand something. Because in the midst of this discussion, we could go wrong. We could theologically speak falsehood. And he wants to guard us from that. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
Why does this discussion come up? Why is he mentioning this now? Well, think about it. If, you, if James is telling people that the trials they're going through are from God and God is doing something in them, then there might come people who would say, so God is pushing people to do evil things because he's bringing testing and as such they are sinning as a result of that testing and so God is tempting people to evil. Wouldn't a good God just not bring testing? James wants us to understand that in the midst of testing, understand that God does not intend evil in testing. God does not intend evil in testing. Because God himself can't be tempted, because there is no evil in him, and because there's no evil in God, he would not cause other people to do evil. So in the midst of testing, understand that when people sin as a result of the testing God has brought, it ain't because he led them to it. It's because of how they responded. See, this is important because many times we can't separate out the testing and the evil that results from some of the testing God brings. So God tests but he never tempts. God doesn't desire anyone to sin, and his testing is not to be temptation to us to respond with evil. Well, we've seen that God tests in other places in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 22. God tested Abraham. And what did he call on Abraham to do? Right, sacrifice his son. That was meant to point Abraham to his need for dependence on God and trust that when God said something, he would bring about good in the midst of it. It was not a time to push Abraham to try and do evil. It was meant to push him to love Jesus, to love God and to depend on him fully and to trust him, what he said. And so when God brings testing into our life, he doesn't mean it as an opportunity for us to rebel or to respond with evil, but instead to push us to trust him and to rightly respond to him in faith. But here's the problem. We as human beings can turn testing into temptations. A.T. Robertson, theologian, said, any trial wrongly used may become a temptation. So what turns a trial into a temptation? James tells us, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God brings testing for our good so that we might respond to him in faith and trust. But sometimes when testing comes, we use it as an opportunity to pursue our own desires rather than what God wants. And in so doing, it becomes temptation. Not because God did it to us, but because we desire to use the testing of God to pursue something other than dependence on him. And so we have to be careful as Christians that when God brings the testing, we respond in faith and trust to him and not as a temptation to have our own desire lived out in the midst of it. 
which means our first response can't simply be, get me out of this. That's my own desire. That's what I want. But in the end, testing is meant to push me to depend on him and to trust him, not to do evil. So what the Bible tells us is that we're responsible for our sin. Uh-oh. Hate to break it to you. For all the devil made me do it, people. Devil can't make you do nothing. When we sin, it's because we desired to do it. Does Satan know how to play upon that? Oh, baby. Does Satan know where we're weak? You better believe it. Does Satan wish to take God's truth and twist it for us to become our own gods? You better believe it's exactly what he presented to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's exactly what he presented to Jesus in the wilderness. Be your own king. You don't need God. Trust in yourself. Well, guess what? When we sin, it's because we desire something other than God. Satan knows how to play on that, but we can't sit around when we sin and go, look what Satan made me do. Our own desire leads us. So in the midst of testing, guess what God knows about us? We might be prone to want to chase after our own desires in the midst of testing not trust in him, not believe in him, not depend on him, but to, to take care of ourselves, to become our own kings. And that is where sin enters in. So he tests, but he never tempts. We are the primary responsible party when it comes to sin. What does he teach us about sin? Verse 15. The de then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So James makes it very clear to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit exactly how sin wreaks havoc in a person's life. And here we're told that desire breaks out into sin and sin brings forth death. And that death is not simply physical, it is separation from God. It is to no longer be able to be with him. At least not in the midst of his grace and his glory. And James wants us to understand that sin is the culprit by which we are robbed of every bit of joy that could possibly come in the midst of testing. When we sin in the midst of testing, we are robbing ourselves of joy that he has for us. And instead, we're replacing it with death. God offers the crown of eternal life to his people. And instead, we choose death. And James wants us to understand that in the midst of testing, this can be a very real issue to struggle with. And we must remember God's ultimate purpose in bringing testing to make us look more like Christ, to develop steadfastness, which ultimately results in us being perfect before God at the second coming of Christ. But you need to understand and I need to understand in the midst of this walk the temptation that our own desires lead us to. And that desire breaks out into sin and that sin results in death. So we have to fight against those desires to pursue other things 
as more valuable to us than God. And James desires for these Christians to know and to understand the truth of what God's doing. And we see that specifically in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God brings trials not for evil, but for our good. And James wants to remind us that in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those testings, war against those desires to want to be your own God and trust in yourself and instead see what God is producing in you through it and that is a greater dependence on him to look more like Jesus who withstood the face of testing in perfect obedience to the Father. God brings trials but do not believe that God is leading you to evil. He brings trials for your good, that you might see clearly that this world can never satisfy you the way only he can. And all the testing and trials remind us over and over again, God, help me not cling to this world more than you, not love the things this world can offer more than you. And those trials point us to that truth. In the midst of testing, God is making us look more like Jesus producing steadfastness that no matter what the world dishes out, no matter what Satan tries to do, no matter what the powers of this age seek to do, they cannot rob us of the joy that is found only in Christ. And he tells us that this leads to glory. That all of this is by the good and gracious hand of God. He says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That includes the testing. It is given by God as a picture of his grace to us, reminding us that he is the father of lights. He is the father of truth. He is the father of all creation, and there is no change in him. What does that mean? What does it mean there's no change in God? It means he won't change his mind. It means he won't go back on his promises that he's made. It means that everything he says is actually going to come about. That all that God promises is going to be fulfilled. And that includes the crown of life. The crown of victory that is to come. Charles Spurgeon said, Trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. That's what God intends in the midst of our testing, is to teach us our desperate need for him and to prove our faith in him. When in the midst of testing, we run and cling to God, we pray, we trust, we believe, we are faithful to him, God is displaying that our faith is not bankrupt. It's not fake. It is true and it is real. Oh, I wish there was a better way to, I wish I could do it without the trials. But that's God's plan. That's his will. And it's all for our good. So what does this mean for us? Let's be honest. In this pursuit of steadfastness in the midst of testing, 
with the idea that there is a finish line out there ahead of us. Let's be real. Most of us, if not all of us, are going to have to be drug across that last line. There's not going to be many Christians who are sprinting full-fledged, no obstacles across the finish line into the glory of God. Instead, I think the picture you're going to see is there's going to be a lot of dragon people. There's going to be a lot of people who are down and out, who have stumbled, who we as Christians are going to have to come alongside them and go, we're getting there. We're not stopping. We're going to keep on going. We're going to get across that line. That God is so good that when one of us starts to stumble, the other Christians around us are going to go, no, you ain't going down. And we're going to be dragging each other across that line, and it's all going to be God going, see what I can do? I can cause you to be steadfast and to persevere in the midst of all these testings. I can show you that I can deliver you through anything. And when we're dragging across that line, we're finally going to have that victorious crown of God says, look what I produced in you. You look more like Jesus than ever before. The beautiful thing is that many of us are stumbling across as we're trying to run in the midst of all these testings. We feel weak, we're faltering, but together as Christians, we pull each other forward to Jesus. We keep dragging each other. That means when I'm down, you got to come pick me up and keep me going. When you fall, i got to grab you and keep you going. That together God puts us as Christians in each other's lives so that we might help each other to pursue this ultimate goal, which is Jesus Christ himself and promise that he's going to be true to what he said. Let's be honest, it's a hard run for Jesus. But it is purposeful, and it is rewarded by God. So most of us will need to be dragged across that final line. Here's what I know. All of us will only finish this race because of the preserving hand of God. When we get to the end of the line, while we've been dragging each other across, we'll find that ultimately it was God's hand that was bringing us to the ultimate conclusion. He calls for us to run, but we run in the strength that God gives. We, we persevere through testing by the strength God provides. And so when we get to the finish line, not only have we run our hearts out, but God shows us that he was the one who ultimately gave us power to cross. By his strength, we're able to finish. By his persevering hand, we're able to finish. So what matters more than anything is not how many possessions you have, not what's your social status. What matters more than anything is what we find right here in these verses. The question we will have to answer is, do we love God? Verse 12 tells us that when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to who? Those who love him. See, the difference between eternal life and eternal separation is whether or not we love God. And this is not just like a general, oh, you know, he makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when we sing a certain song. This is not a general love. This is a dependent love on Jesus Christ, his only son. 
So it's not just I generally love God. It's I love Jesus who died for me, and I trust that his death and resurrection is the only way I can be found pure in God's eyes. So for those who love God that way, we are promised eternal life. But if you don't love God, if you don't love his son Jesus who died in your place, there is no eternal life for you, only eternal wrath. See, in that day, it won't matter what the lowly man had on him or what the rich man had on him. In that day, the only thing that will matter is, were you trusting in Jesus? James tells us the lowly man who did love God was exalted. Right? His position in Christ exalted him into the presence of the Father. But the rich man, in his humiliation, being humbled, and lowered to see that none of his stuff could ever make him well with God. In the end, the only thing that matters is do you love God? Do you love his son? Are you trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection alone? My prayer is that every person in the room is trusting in Christ that you know that his death on the cross is the only thing that could pay for your sin which separated you from God and his love. And that because Jesus died and rose again, he can offer you what you cannot get on your own, which is eternal life before God and glory forevermore. And so we as Christians, when we run through testing, we are clinging to Christ, finding our ultimate joy in him and knowing that every test that comes is meant to push us to a greater dependence, a greater love, a greater trust of God and what he's doing, realizing that he alone can rescue and he alone can deliver on the promises he's made. And just so you know, he will always deliver on his promises. You know why? There is no shadow of change with him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means our joy can be settled in him. You can have ultimate joy as a Christian, but only in him. He's the one who brings purpose in the midst of our test. Trust in him alone and find eternal life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And God, I thank you for pointing us to the fact that God, the testing you walk us through is purposeful. God, the things that you're doing, they have a point. And Father, as Christians, we're able to know that you are doing great things in the midst of the tests that we face. In the midst of the trials we run into, God, you are producing in your people a steadfastness that results in glorification, that God, one day we will be perfect in your sight. And Father, that's not because of our greatness, that's because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to run. I pray you'll help us as Christians to run this race that is filled with obstacles and tests and trials. And God, when the tests come, help us not to rely in our own greatness. Help us not to rely on our own power. But God, instead, to depend and trust and walk after you. Knowing that, God, your testing is meant to point us back to you and your greatness. And Father, may we see that the things of this world can never satisfy us. God, they can bring temporary joy, but they cannot bring everlasting joy that only Jesus can. 
And so help us as Christians this morning to realize that everything you bring into our path is purposeful and everything is meant for our good and everything is meant to point us to your greatness. So God, I pray that you'll help the Christians in the room who are walking through some really difficult trials. God, may they use those as opportunities to trust even fuller in you, to depend on you. God, guard us from responding with evil. Guard us from responding in sin. Instead, help us to cling to you, praying to you, and knowing that you alone can deliver us. And Father, if there's anyone in this place today who is trying to run the race by themselves, who's trying to be good on their own, who's trying to do enough good that maybe you'll forgive them, God, help them to see that there's no amount of good work they could ever do that would pay for their sin. But God, you've simply called on them to trust in Jesus and his sacrifice does pay for everything we've ever done, for all the sin we've ever committed are going to commit. God, I thank you that Christ's death and his sacrifice is total. And so Father, may they trust in Jesus. And Father, help us as Christians not to run this race with pitifulness and sorrow frowns upon our faces. God, may we run this race with joy, trusting in you. And God, that other people might see us run and say not how good are those people, but instead might say how great is their God. So Lord, work in us. Help us find joy in trials where we're struggling. And help us to see that you are the rewarder of all those who run after you. Lord, we ask you to do it so that you might receive more glory. Look what you can do, God, in the lives of people like us. To you be glory and honor forever. But God, we need you. We need you right now. So I ask you to help us to respond in faith to you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.